Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennium Money Professional. My name's Dev Raga. We are continuing the conversation with Owen Raskovich from Rask Finance. Uh, and this is part two. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, it's worthwhile going back and listening to it because it's a chronological episode. So everything that we talk about in this episode is kind of referenced in the previous episode. So let's get started. Now, if you have any specific questions or comments, please don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or Facebook. That's the preferred medium of contact. And don't forget the three main aims of this channel, education, empowerment, and entertainment. All right. Welcome back. We're with Owen Rask, Rask Group. Lots of interesting discussions about personal finance, his journey, his story. Now, Owen, valuation of a business. Can you talk about, I mean, there's so many different ways to do this, how to value a business. Uh, Can you talk about some of the sort of basic ways that you might use to value a business? Yeah, sure. So at the end of the day, there's really only two ways to value anything, really, is can you value the thing independently of itself? So can you value, I guess, an object like a company in itself? And then the other way is can you value something to your, the, with the value going to yourself as an individual. So what I mean by that is, let's take an example. Let's take we let's take uh, say a company like Apple. So Apple, the company, can be valued from two directions. It can be valued with cash flows going to the business, so you can estimate what the future cash flows of that business will be, and you can try and put a number on that. The other way that you could do it is you could value it as if the cash flows were going to you as an individual investor. So what dividends do you receive, and what do you hope to sell the shares for in the future? So you buy today, you get some dividends, and then you get the sale proceeds from selling your shares in the future. So that's what we call free cash flow to equity, basically, or free cash flow to equity holders. And then we've got free cash flow to firm, which is like where you actually get in Excel and you do a bunch of different spreadsheets and you do something called a discounted cash flow analysis. And what you're effectively trying to do is you're trying to calculate the future profitability of a company and valuing that company in and of itself. So if it sounds a bit confusing, just imagine an example. Let, let's say, for example, we have an ETF. In an ETF, you might pay $100 per share for that ETF today, and in two years, you sell it for $120, for example. It means you've made a $20 profit. So that's a positive cash flow um, of $20, or if you think about it, it's positive of 120 and negative of 100 because you have to pay for it. But you also get dividends in between. So some people often ask me, can you value an ETF? Absolutely, you can. You just value it as if the cash flows are coming to you. Now, what we tend to do more so as an industry is we tend to do the other method where we value a company as if the cash flows are going to the company's bank account and not yours. That's called free cash flow to firm. And that's what I use most when I do company valuations. Now, I should say all of this because I'll give you some examples in a minute, but 95% of successful investing, in my opinion, is qualitative research. It's not the quantitative research. And for about 
10 years now, I've held this view, maybe not quite 10 years, just under 10 years, I've held this view that if you believe that your edge or your competitive advantage in investing is a quantitative approach, so low price-to-earnings ratio stocks or companies trading with high dividend yields, then you are going to lose because we've had people like Jim Simons. I don't know if you know who he is, Dev, but uh, Jim Simons is the founder of Renaissance Technology. I think he's worth 20 or $30 billion. He's got a much higher annualized return than Warren Buffett, so much higher, maybe double as high as Warren Buffett. And he did that. He's a PhD. He's an ex-CIA code cracker, a brilliant mind. He worked with some people like Euler, who created Euler's Rule, so many people like famous mathematicians that he has worked with, and he took all of that knowledge and just applied it quantitatively to the stock market. And I've heard rumors of he would his, his team, he has about 100 PhDs working in his team, and what they would do is they'd try and exploit data anomalies going back 20 or 30 years where you wouldn't even think that something could be explained by a data point like the weather in Paris and its effect on the stock market for that day. But they would exploit that mathematically, not even knowing that the variable was Paris's weather. They would just put weather data into their algorithm and see if it did anything. And so for many years, there have been people like this and organizations like this in the stock market. So I've always thought that if your belief or your strategy was to try and be a better quantitative person, you're probably going to lose. And that's come to the fore recently when we've had like GPT, for example. Uh, Most people know ChatGPT, but like generative AI or AI learning models um, that effectively can do all this high-frequency trading before you've even thought about what's going on. And um, at the end of the day, I still think most of the value for value investors can be captured through qualitative research. So getting out and speaking to customers, going and visiting sites, actually like dialing into the conference call to see what the CEO is doing in terms of team culture or long-term, I guess, incentive plans and those types of things. Because I think that the more trading that's happened, the more important it is to actually do less and exploit the behavioral advantage that we have as human beings. Um, It's just very difficult to do because there's so much that comes between you and your behavior. But I'll give you some more concrete examples if anyone's playing along at home. So with a company like Washington H. Sol Pattinson, which is an Australian business that um, is a holding company, it's kind of like Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, but for Australia, it it owns bits and pieces of other companies. For that business, it's paid a consistent dividend yield. It's a mature business and it tends to grow in high single digits. For that company, you could probably use like a price earnings ratio and you could probably use the dividend yield. Or you could add up all of the different parts that it has inside of it and try and put a value on those and then add it together. That's what we call a sum of the parts. You're basically adding up all the parts. Or you could use a dividend discount model, which is basically like the value of the the cash flow stream that comes to you with franking credits. So we've got a tutorial, free tutorials on those online. Now, if we take another company example of ARB, which is the 4x4 business that does like bull bars, canopies, lighting and accessories in Australia and in the USA. Um, and in ARB's case, it is growing really fast, but it is higher risk than Washington hates Sol Pattinson because it's actually a single vertical business. So it operates in aftermarket parts for four by fours. So it's a much riskier business, but we could still use a discounted cash flow analysis. It also has, because it has stable earnings or stable profits and it has stable cash flow. 
Now, if we go to a different type of business, you could take, say, PayPal, which is, a, again, a stable business, but it's operating in a hyper-competitive market. You could use a discounted cash flow analysis for that, which is just adding up the future value of the cash flows that that business generates. Or you could use a price-earnings ratio, or maybe you could even be a bit more speculative and use like a price-to-sales ratio. Uh, now, one final example that people might know, which is Zero, the accounting software. Uh, it's mainly used by small and medium businesses like ours in Australia. It costs about 60 bucks a month on a subscription. Zero is not profitable. So we can still value a business that's not profitable because you can value it as if you're selling the shares. So I buy it for 10, sell it for 12, uh, and you are basically bet- betting on the sentiment. And so you can use a price-to-sales ratio for that because it's earlier stage and it's growing really fast. Or when you do your spreadsheet, which can be very basic, you can effectively do it so that you forecast the profits and the number of subscribers and the number and the cost of those subscriptions for five or 10 years into the future. So my discounted cash flow analysis for zero is 10 years into the future. And I don't believe that I have the ability to forecast 10 years into the future. In fact, there was a New York University study that came out and showed that I think it's three years out or five years out the chance of you getting the right number in terms of your valuation is one in a million. And so I don't do these valuations with the expectation that it's an exact science. I do it because it's actually really interesting to understand how different levers in the business can move and how that affects the final valuation of a company. And so at the end of the day, like I'm hunting for the best businesses in the world, whether they're in Australia or overseas, if I'm doing direct stocks. Obviously, if I'm doing ETFs, I just get a bit of everything. But it's also important to understand that within that, valuation is more of an art than it is a science. And that's particularly true now that we have these AI tools and these machine learning tools that are far more superior at getting the analytical edge than we'll ever be. And I think if you take that in context... And what it boils down to at the end of the day is if you're going to buy individual companies, what you really need to look for is the best businesses, the the businesses that can stand the test of time, that can evolve and adapt. You know, one of the beliefs is that I think it's the Santa Fe Institute came out and said that the best way to think about financial markets is as complex adaptive systems. And what that means is that the, the, the complexity comes from so many different stakeholders in the industry. Um, you've got shareholders, investors, news cycles, regulators, currencies, so many things you, you will never be able to predict, all acting in one arena. But then you also have the adaptive element, which is that actors or stakeholders within the market will also change through time and they will adapt. And so I think what we can kind of come up with or what I've kind of come up with as a framework for finding these companies that survive is that you should be trying to find businesses that have a very strong competitive advantage, but businesses that also can adapt that competitive advantage. In the book Value Investing by Bruce Greenwald, um, they talk about how companies that invest outside of their circle of competence, companies that invest outside of their competitive advantage eventually lose because the the economics get worse the further you invest outside of your core product or core service. And The key insight here is that when you're in the business is that you should be looking for businesses that are long-term visionaries but can also focus on that ability to reinvest in themselves in their core competency. So that's that's interesting, Owen. So when you sort of select a methodology in terms of 
sort of selecting a methodology for valuing your business. How do you select the right methodology with the business? I assume a small business valuation methodology will be different to a medium business and a large corporation. And is that sort of, like you said, that's not really an exact science. So that kind of is very individualistic. Is that right? Yeah. So um, the best way to think about this is there's like a life cycle of businesses. So say, for example, over the past 10 years, we've seen the emergence of rapidly growing technology companies and a lot of SaaS companies and a lot of companies that have kind of defied the laws of gravity and capitalism over five to 10 years because they almost grow faster as they get bigger. And so what tends to happen with those businesses in the early years is they tend to not be profitable, but you don't want to miss them because you know they're impressive businesses and you know the market values them highly, like customers are using them, but they're not profitable. So you couldn't use a price to earnings ratio as a very simple heuristic Maybe you can use a price to sales ratio. So over the past five years when money was easy come, easy go, and venture capitalists were pouring money into these tech stocks, what we were finding is that those businesses were growing rapidly at the sales level, but they didn't have the earnings yet, even though they probably would in the future. So you can only use the tool that can be used at that time. So we had the price to sales ratio, or we would have to make some inferences about the future. So... We would use the price to sales ratio maybe in conjunction with discounted cash flow that would look 10 years out into the future. So I just mentioned zero and how zero is not profitable. Even though today it kind of says it is, it's not really. I use a 10-year outlook for that business to try and get a sense of where I think it's going to go based on comparable businesses and my understanding of the business. I'll give you another example, a business that I followed for a very long time and still own shares in. And by the way, I still own shares in zero and I still own units in the FMEX ETF, which I mentioned and I own shares in this business, which is um, ProMedicus. ProMedicus is, I would say now, the world leader in sending and receiving information and images inside medical practices, but in particular at North American hospitals and teaching hospitals uh, in particular, because they can send and receive, for example, I don't know, an MRI file, and you can inspect that on your phone, your iPhone or your iPad, and you can get it in less than a second. Gigantic file with heaps of granularity, can be used with 3D modeling, and they can do that instantly, basically. And now this business, when I first invested in it, they'd only, owned, they'd only made a couple of wins, uh, had a couple of wins in terms of they just had the Mayo Clinic, um, so like obviously the world-renowned Mayo Clinic as a customer. And so that was a huge tell for me that this business was getting adoption, but was always seemingly overvalued, and it still is today. This company's always overvalued. And the business itself has continued to grow and the share price is up probably 10x, maybe 15x from that point. And if you just look at the business overall, if you were to do a discounted cash flow analysis where you're looking at the cash flows, it would serially undervalue that company. So you would have to say after following it for a few years that maybe this isn't the right tool. And so one of the things that I did early on in that business and my involvement with it is I actually looked at the business from multiple different perspectives and multiple different lenses. So I use things like price earnings ratios, price to sales ratios. I used a full discounted cash flow analysis over 10 years, but I also used another method called the IRR method. And all this is, and you can do this in Excel, there's actually a function for it, which is it takes a cash outflow today to purchase the shares. And then it sums up future cash inflows from dividends and when you eventually sell the shares. And for me personally, this is one of the most I guess, eloquent models for valuing high growth stocks, which is that you're just trying to get an annualized percentage because that's what the IRR tells you. It tells you 
if you, for example, you got a, a return, like if the input or the, the formula gave you an answer of 10%, what it's effectively telling you is the expected return based on the cash flows that you've given me is 10% per annum. And what I find is that the more experienced an investor is, the more simple their models become. So one person who I think is an absolutely unbelievable investor in Australia is not a professional investor, but I just think he is, the way he thinks, and and he's so humble about it, is a guy called Andrew Page, who founded strawman.com. So Andrew was with me at the Motley Fool days as well. And Andrew will profess to never saying that he knows the answer to something. He will say things like, I think it's this, but I can't be sure. And what his method basically boils down to of valuing companies is basically saying, I think the company can grow its profits or its sales at 5, 10 or 15% for the next few years. So there's a company in Australia called Alcidian, which um, does clinical decision-making systems. So in a hospital, instead of doing paper, which is crazy, I can't believe that still happens, Instead of doing that, you get an information system like on your, again, on your iPad or on your computer and it links the ER through to the ward and so on and so forth. And this business is a software business. And Andrew looked at this business and go, okay, it's not profitable right now. Okay, it's growing really fast, so I can't really get a handle on being exact with it. So maybe I'll just use this method of, I think sales could grow at, you know, 5% or 10% or 20% for the next few years. Based on that, what would it be worth in the future? And then you take that value of the share price in the future and you bring it back to today's dollars. And it might sound very complicated, but in essence, what you're saying is, I think sales will grow and I think another investor would be willing to pay me five times that amount of sales in the future for the share price. Now, if we switch gears really quickly, and I'm trying to cover a lot in a short period of time, but if we switch gears quickly, when you go into private markets, which is where you might buy a business that is not on the stock exchange... Typically, what happens there is it's 100% heuristics. Unless you get a consulting company, like an accounting company involved, and they'll do a valuation for you, typically what happens is, like say, for example, a financial planning business. If a financial planning business in Australia makes a million dollars in fees from its clients, typically the heuristic is three times that amount. So typically, you will get a valuation of $3 million. Uh, And that's quite well established in the industry. It's similar for insurance brokers. And then if the the business is lower and lower and lower quality, typically that multiple goes down and down and down. And it may even be just purely based on profit rather than sales. And even in the, if we switch back to the public markets, you can do this too. Uh, A lot of professional investors will look at a company, like let's say, for example, Woolworths, and it's a supermarket business. And it's bigger than all the other supermarkets by a factor of, you know, 30%, 40%, even bigger than, much bigger than Coles. Now, if you look at the Woolworths business, you might say, well, Woolworths has a price earnings ratio or, you know, just comparing the share price to the profit of 15 times. Now, the average for the ASX is around about that, or the long-term average, it's around about 15 or 16 times. So you would be saying, I can buy Woolworths shares for 15 or 16 times, or I can buy the Vanguard S&P ASX 300 or VAS ETF for 15 or 16 times. Now, you would basically make a decision in your mind, which is this. Is Woolworths a better than average company? And if the answer is yes, well, you might be inclined to say it's probably undervalued. But if you say it's in line, it's probably average quality, well, then you probably wouldn't buy it because it's probably fair value. But if you finally decide that it's lower quality than the average company in Australia, you'll say, well, I wouldn't buy it because it's not trading at enough 
you know, discount. It'd have to be trading at 10 times price to earnings ratio for me to say it's a good investment because it's undervalued. And that's basically the essence of valuation across multiple spectrums. I mean, we could do we could do a whole podcast series, Dev, on valuation. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of giving you the crash course here, trying to use as many examples as possible. No, that was really interesting. And I, I learned lots and lots of little things. I mean, I, I don't sort of um, do, you know, individual business valuations or anything like that. But I know a lot of listeners are very interested in that element uh, of the financial world. Just switching a little bit, there's a lot of worry, you know, as I said before, I'm an index fund investor. And there's a lot of people, the question they ask is, well, if everyone kind of does that and they don't have an arm of active investment in their portfolio, wouldn't that be just funneling money into this big, big bubble? the so-called index fund bubble. And I can't remember the guy's name. I think he was in, you know, he was Michael featured Burry. in that movie. Michael Burry, yeah. He sort of talks about this sort of index fund bubble. What are your thoughts on that? Because that's quite a common question that I get given that I'm an indexer. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, sure. So it's a fair question. I think in finance, we call anything that's big a bubble. And in horticulture, they'd call anything that's big beautiful. So I think uh, the way we think about markets is that they ebb and flow. There are certain points where things get unsustainable. And so index funds in their very core is you buy it in your brokerage account and Vanguard, iShares, State Street, they just go and buy whatever it is that you've instructed them to buy and they do it in an automated fashion. And so this comes back to our conversation around indexing, active versus passive, et cetera. And at the end of the day, there are things that can never be indexed. So things that can't be indexed simply because what you invest in or what the vanguards of the world invest in for you, there's simply not enough shares, there's not enough bonds, there's not enough whatever it is that they're trying to buy to go around. Now, the fear is that as the index funds get bigger, and they're over 50% of all shares in the US, as they get bigger and they decide to sell, what happens? So, for example, if you sell your shares in the S&P 500 ETF, so the IVV ETF, which is one that I own and my company owns, by the way, full disclosure, I, sell, I say sell in my brokerage account, 
that triggers a sell from iShares, which then triggers a sell for the 500 shares. And then the share, even though I'm not big enough as an investor, I'd love to be, but my sell decision triggers the market to go down a tiny little bit. Then if you, Dev, see it and you see, oh, the S&P 500 is down, I'm going to sell a little bit, and then your shares push the market down a little bit. And everyone keeps doing this. It becomes this self-fulfilling cycle of the share price is falling simply because people are selling. That is that is a that's a real and genuine worry for people because they think, well, index funds are so big, their influence on the market is profound. Uh, I think the the analogy that Barry gave was effectively the door is staying the same size, but more people are coming through it. And the idea would be that eventually not everyone will be able to fit through and you, the door will break down. But behind the scenes, what happens in an index fund is basically the index fund provider goes and buys the shares, which should be pretty liquid on the market. There are rules around from the index level, so say like MISCI, like MSCI or S&P, they typically limit the number of funds that can track a certain indice because they know that this could be a risk. That's particularly important with more thematic style ETFs or sector-based index funds. Um, But as an ETF gets bigger, it's also important to understand that the whole ecosystem around index funds is growing. So say, for example, I own the S&P 500 ETF, the IBV ETF. I do not own VGS, which is the Vanguard All World MISCI something or other ETF. Now, if I own Apple shares as a result of I owning the S&P 500 and you own Apple shares as a result of the VGS ETF or the MISCI All World we're going to be trading at different times and there are going to be people that are selling as we're buying. And so those can be matched. And basically what happens is even though these ETFs are growing bigger and bigger, they're not necessarily creating more and more of a systemic issue because they're actually trading amongst themselves in different directions. And I'll give you an example. So it's estimated that the the global stock exchange system is more actively traded than ever before. It's the, the amount of sh- like individual stocks that people own and how long they own them for has gone from years down to five and a half months. In other words, people own their stocks on average for less than half a year. And what that basically means is people are turning over their portfolio rapidly. So that would be in excess of 100% turnover. If you go to the Vanguard website for VAS, which is the Australian ASX 300 ETF, you will see that the turnover from that ETF is around about 3%, meaning that that ETF turns over about 3% of the entire portfolio of stocks every year. It's incredibly low turnover. So effectively, what you have is you have a holding structure that doesn't do a lot of the buying and selling, and that's actually a good thing because that's the thing that people are fearful of. People, by using index funds, are doing less trading than ever before. And I think that's pretty impressive. I think that's a good thing. And remember I said before, Dev, about how markets are complex adaptive systems. If all of the world goes to index funds and everyone could predict what the index funds are going to do, because they're pretty boring, plain Jane, predictable things. Like if a company gets big, it's going to be in the ASX 200. If it's going to get even bigger, it's going to be in the ASX 100 and in the ASX 50 and so on and so forth. And so if you knew that, you could exploit that mispricing with active management. And that's the adaptive systems coming into play because there we have someone or an organization that can exploit the mispricings and the flow of money. And in effect, what you have is you have a more 
uh, I guess, efficient marketplace. So am I worried about some ETFs? Absolutely. Like you should never, there should never be ETFs on things that are illiquid. For example, hybrid securities in Australia is something that I'm concerned about. Not to the existential limit, but I'm actually concerned that some of the hybrid ETFs in Australia are actually too big for the underlying market. I don't think you should ever have an ETF on things like unlisted assets, which I don't think we'll ever see, like things like private companies or that. I just don't think we'll have that. That's where you need active management. And if you are going into private markets, uh, I think you're better off having a company structure than an ETF or an index fund, which is based on a trust, because it can hold the taxable gains inside of it. And that's one of the competitive advantages of listed investment companies over ETFs. And again, why, Dev, I don't believe that it's active or passive. I believe it's active and passive. And my co-host on the Australian Investors Podcast, who's a financial planner with many years of experience, says this, he says this beautiful thing. Building a portfolio is not about the maximum return for a level of risks. It's about making sure that your money and your wealth is going to be okay no matter what comes next. And if you think about it like that, just prepare the portfolio for whatever comes next. And you don't know what that is. So just be in a position to be okay with that. And so if this index fund bubble thing, if I'm wrong about that, well, obviously I don't want all of my money tied to index funds. But at the end of the day, you know, my portfolio is spread across multiple asset classes in multiple vehicle types. The industry is incredibly well regulated and Bori could be right, but I would, on balance, I'd probably say he's wrong. Yeah, that was interesting. And I suppose it all comes down to behavioral elements because, you know, you only sell things when you find out that other people are selling things. So uh, if you're a net buyer of index fund units, um, ideally, particularly those sort of, you know, the traditional ETFs and index funds, rather than the ultra thematic and ultra sector based and uh, illiquid sort of um, sectors, I think um, you're generally, I would say, you're safe. But like you said, nothing's 100% and you've diversified your investments. That's pretty much the only free lunch in investing. And likewise, yeah, I've got a bit of a property portfolio and index fund portfolio and of course, superannuation. Uh, Hopefully that'll get me through the uh, days uh, into the sunset. Now, a couple of final questions before we sort of finish up. Fascinating conversation. We have a significant proportion of listeners of this uh, channel that are, you know, quote unquote, sophisticated investors. And I think in Australia, correct me if I'm wrong, the definition is, um, you know, generally people that have uh, an income of quarter of a million dollars or more or have net assets of around two and a half million dollars or more. Do you think that such types of investors should position their portfolio differently to people that don't have such high incomes? Or do you think fundamentally it's kind of all the same, doesn't really matter about your income or your current net wealth, net worth, beg your pardon, that everyone should kind of be doing similar things in terms of, you know, core portfolio and satellite portfolio? Is is there anything special or different that these slightly higher net worth individuals should be doing? No. This is my first answer. You shouldn't be doing anything different necessarily. But there's another answer to this. Charlie Munger is famous for many sayings, but one of the things that he says is that people don't copy our model because it is too simple. He says, most people believe you can't be an expert if it's too simple, right? And what he's basically saying is that simple works. And most people think 
because they are wealthier or because they have more and they've succeeded in their own field that they need to do more in order to get better results. I think I think athletes are particularly vulnerable to this because for their whole journey, they have to focus on their mindset of being the best athlete, being the best, winning at all costs. And then they're reinforced if they're successful by the crowds and by the media and by this. And then they get into investing and they're like, I'm going to do this, 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 and I'm going to be the best at that and I'm going to do this. And at the end of the day, there's this giant humility curve that comes into effect where you, all of a sudden you believe you're like the, the ultimate investor and then you come crashing down along with the rest of us. And the thing that, the other thing that happens is like we, obviously through RASC, we have our general advice, but then we have a personal advice arm that's attached to us through Waddle Partners Financial Planning. And they deal with a lot of actual, actually it's funny, they, they deal with a lot of doctors. So I don't know um, where they get that from, but they deal with a lot of doctors and, um, what happens is typically very smart people, very wealthy people, business owners, etc., come in because they're specialists in retirement and in particular people that are wealthier. And they come in and they think that because they're seeing a financial advisor that, that has to be a really sophisticated strategy to match their sophisticated wealth. But that's simply not always the case because a lot of the tools that we speak about are now open to everyone. And you don't need to have all of the kind of like the bells and whistles of private markets, unlisted assets, uh, short duration, floating rate. You can get all that in ETFs. You don't need to go and be a sophisticated investor. And I think for the most part, the, the phrase sophisticated investor is actually a misnomer because the idea was that when you have a sophisticated investor who has a certain amount of wealth, because they've accumulated that wealth, therefore they must be on average more intelligent than the person that hasn't. So that makes, that's what makes them sophisticated. And the, the takeaway from that was as an industry, well, we don't need to put all the protections in place because if they get into trouble, that's their own fault. But what we found is that this is actually kind of like a loophole to then push more complicated strategies onto these so-called sophisticated investors who then have less understanding of more sophisticated products. And so the investment world has taken this kind of loophole and gone straight through it and said, here's more sophisticated strategies that you can use. And by the way, our fees are going to go up because these are more complicated strategies. When really you don't need to do that. My um, my co-host on the Australian Investors Podcast, Drew, once again, recently did a test and found that you can get every asset class in ETF form, every asset class at least you could want. Obviously, we're not going to talk about like private companies and private equity, but you still need a financial advisor and you still need to seek out advice if you are one of these sophisticated investors because as your wealth grows, the risk of a mistake also grows. So you would still want expert advice on things like business structuring, tax sheltering, intergenerational wealth transfer. For example, if there's an increase in the superannuation, whatever, all of these different things, you would want to get expert advice on those. Um, but for the most part, the core principles of investing apply whether you have, you know, a uh, $10,000 or $10 million, I think it's David Swenson, uh, who's a pension fund manager from the US, basically just came in and said, that's it, we're just going to do index funds from now on. And I think one of the things that happens is just a lot of agency in our industry around people come in and they expect the advisor to give them something complicated. So the advisor gives them something complicated to get the business, but it doesn't always have to be the case. Yeah, well said. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like I, I sort of look at my portfolio once a year and um and a lot of the questions that i get is you know what's the secret like you know what do you do that's different i'm like actually 
I don't do anything different. Like I've kept it really, really simple. And it just means that as I get older, uh, you know, I've got, I've got a family, I've got young kids, you know, my focus in life is slightly different now, more focused on family and children, particularly over the next 10 to 15 years. I don't want to be doing anything complex with my investments. I just want my investments to keep growing steadily and slowly. I'm not really after sort of significant returns. I think I've done enough, but and it's interesting when I say that, it's it's almost as if kind of like a letdown, like a sort of like, oh, really? Like, can't be, it can't be that simple. I'm like, yeah, actually, it's not that complicated. You got to spend less than you earn, invest the difference and uh, repeat, rinse and then uh, automate as much as possible. Now, I'm a self-confessed cheapskate and, uh, you know, people that follow me know that I, I love Cadbury's chocolates and whenever there's a sale, I'm out there and I'm buying two for one, etc. cetera, uh, hazelnut. So um, Cadbury's, if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, more than happy to. Is that something like in terms of money wins and in terms of, you know, things that you do that, that might be useful for our listeners? Um, is there something that you'd like to share that, that you do? Yeah, I think the single most important thing that has changed my life financially is just having intention with money. So Yogi Berra has this quote that effectively goes, you've got to be very careful if you don't know where you are going because you might not get there. And it basically is this idea that a lot of us go through life without actually knowing what we're doing. And I think tools and technology have increased um, to the extent where we don't necessarily need any more advances in technology or software to help us invest or manage money. All that's left for us to do is basically just to be better with it. And that comes down to behavior. And so one of the things that I wish I had done earlier, I remember I was being interviewed recently, Dev, and they asked me, like, what's the, the if you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice when you were younger, what would it be? And I said, see a psychologist. And the host laughed. He's a lovely guy. He didn't laugh out of, like, I guess, to, to, to rub it in or anything. He just was so surprised about what I had said. What we, I think it was, in, I think it's around about the 1970s where you could make this case, which is that um, money deviated from the realm of psychology and took a turn into economics. And at that point, economics became quantitative because we needed academic literature to support findings. So it was kind of like academia was throwing us all of these numbers and formulas to try and justify its own existence as a department at universities. And basically what's happened is money has taken a turn into this world of numbers, formulas, mathematics, spreadsheets, when really money should be in the department of psychology because it doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter how much income you have, you'll never be happy if you're just chasing something or if you don't even know what you're chasing and you're just going in a direction. And uh, there's a fantastic podcast on the the Farnham Street uh, Knowledge Project podcast with uh, Marshall Goldsmith, which basically says you need alignment to find purpose in life, you need alignment with your day-to-day and your higher aspirations in life. And this is something that I didn't know because it was from a mental health perspective. I was like, I was in prep school or elementary school when everyone around me was well ahead. And so it took a lot of work with like a, a counselor and uh, a life coach to really figure this out for myself. But the one thing that has changed my life, my money win actually has nothing to do with money. And it's actually just about creating a vision board and what this means is just finding all the things that you like and dislike in life. You just said kids and family are more important to you now over the next 10 to 15 years. Then I think that's fantastic. So then you can rearrange the priorities in your life and you can make a focus 
or you can have a focus on the things that truly matter to you, which are those things. And you can put aside the career prospects and all of those things that consume your time. And you can ultimately be happier, even if you have less from the outside, air quotes, less. And so for me personally, by going through these steps with my psychologist and my coach, I realized that the things that mattered to me, a lot of them I already had. And the things that were really not that important to me, but I was prioritizing in my calendar were just kind of dead air. Like they didn't need to be there for me to be happy. And one of the simple steps, I'm sure Kate, if she comes on the podcast, will talk about this is like, just get a piece of paper, write down in order the things you spend the most money on in one column. In the next column, write down the things you spend the most time on. And in the final column, write down the things that bring you the most joy. You should be matching those up. And oftentimes there's a mismatch between all of those columns and you've got to sort them out and rearrange what's important to you because we all have a finite amount of money and time and energy. And all that budgeting is, is just a rearranging of priorities towards your higher purpose. And so figuring out what that is, is by far my biggest money win. And it's what I try and impress on all of our community, no matter if they're a beginner or if they've got a hundred million dollars or even billionaires that listen to our show, I impress this upon everyone. And it goes back to that Yogi Berra quote. And so that's what I want to leave you with. If it's one thing is sit down, identify that one thing, or that those few things that are really important to you. It won't happen today. It won't happen by listening to this podcast. It will happen. Maybe it happens over the duration of your podcast there, but not from this one episode. But maybe it happens from a year or two of speaking with people, being vulnerable with yourself, introspection, and just trying to get the most out of your life each and every day. The money stuff could fall in around the outside. Well said. Fantastic. And that's all we have time for. So, really want to thank um, Owen Rask for coming on the My Millennial Money Professional podcast and sharing his thoughts and wisdom about, um, you know, Rask Group, about finance, about behavioral finance, about index funds, about valuation, and uh, just simply phenomenal. So, really appreciate your time, Owen. Thanks for coming on board. I really appreciate the invite, Deb, and thanks. I think you have the highest rated podcast of any that I've ever come across. So kudos to you, mate. That's a fantastic effort. Thank you very much. If you have any questions or comments, don't hesitate to contact us on Facebook or Twitter, and please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcasting platform you may be using, or just leave it on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review because it goes a long way for people to find and learn about these channels. A lot of thought and effort goes into it. My name is Dev Raga. This is My Millennium Money Professional. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.